Hey, this morning I'm excited because we're starting a new series in the book of Exodus, and we're, call, we're entitling the series, Becoming His. It's talking about bringing a group of people together to become the people that God intends them to be. And is that still the case for us today, here in the New Testament, in the church? Do we need to become His? Do we need to become the people that God intends us to be? Amen. We do. Amen. Um, our, our verse that we're looking at um, in the study, our theme verse, is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. And this is what it says. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God wants to do a transformative work in the lives of his people. Amen? Amen. How many at one time were... Not a people. In other words, you were living your life apart from God. Hopefully that's everybody in the room, right? Because we all at one time were separated from God. And yet God, who is rich in mercy, revealed himself to each of us in a unique way. In a way that was personal. And he drew us to himself. And maybe you have yet to experience or encounter God in that way. My hope is that you will through this time together through this study in the book of Exodus. I've entitled my um, opening message, uh, Suffering and Slavery. How did we get here? How did we get here? The people of God found themselves in an environment where they were enslaved to the Egyptians. And I'm sure at some point in that experience, they must have asked the question, how did we get to this miserable place? You know, in 1996, on December 26th, there was a man named Cho Shung Chul. He lived in South Korea. And he was celebrating Christmas, and he might have had a few too many drinks. And he was walking home through the city of Seoul, South Korea, when he fell into a manhole. He was knocked unconscious, and when he came to, he was a little bit delirious and lost. And the account goes that he spent eight days wandering around the sewers underneath the city of Seoul, South Korea. He drank the sewer water to stay alive, and he found some plastic that he wrapped himself in just to stay warm. He cried out constantly for help, but nobody seemed to be able to hear him. His ordeal finally came to an end on the eighth day when someone on the streets above, happened to hear a faint cry for help. You can imagine that experience. How in the world did I get here? One day he's celebrating Christmas, he's, he's having a good old time, things are going well, and the next moment he is in misery. That's the story that we're looking at here in the book of Exodus. Would you join me there if you have a Bible or if you don't? There are Bibles available in the back. It's going to be on the screen behind me. You can pull out your electronic device. If you don't have the Bible app, go ahead and get that. There's plenty of um, versions. We're going to be looking at the Holman translation if you want to follow along. But Exodus, let's talk a little bit about the name Exodus. If you were um, a Jew today, and let's be praying for Israel. At this time, let's be praying for the circumstance that is going on there in the Middle East. There's many innocent victims that have already been impacted and will continue to be impacted. 
as this terrorist group Hamas is rooted out. But we need to be praying for that as God's people, praying for the peace of Jerusalem. But in Hebrew, if you were a Jew, you would not find the book of Exodus in their scriptures. There is no such book. Their name of their book is called Shemot. And Shemot is translated names. And it derives from the very first verse in Exodus. The first verse of Exodus, where it reads, um, I thought I had it in my notes, but I don't, so I'm going to turn to it. It's on the screen, good. I can't, I can't see anything on my screen, if you notice. But there it is. These are the names, Shemot, of the sons of Israel. Thank you for that uh, shout out. These are the names. Isn't it cool that God knows your name? That every name matters and that every name counts? That's our God. He's a personal God. And that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who was there during the Exodus. But that's the name of the book of that we know as Exodus, in the Hebrew Scriptures. What does Exodus mean? Where does it come from? Well, it's the Greek translation of um, the book, and it basically was picked up this name because it means the way out in Greek. It's a name that means what you would think. We have some signs around the auditorium that say what? Exit, right? That's the English word, but in the Greek, it's exodus. And it, it literally, it just points the way to the way out. If you ever have a fire in here, these things come on. There's like lights and sirens and all kinds of stuff. Why? Because they want to make sure that they're pointing the way out, the way of escape from the danger and from the misery and the suffering that you might be enduring if you're in the smoke and in the fire. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, it reads this, In the third month, on the same day of the month that the Israelites had left the land of Egypt, they entered the wilderness of Sinai. That word, had left, is the Greek word, exodus. That's where it comes from. So join me in verse 1 as we begin our look at this first chapter of Exodus together. Remember, we had left Genesis if you've ever read through the book of Genesis, with the story of Joseph. Joseph was sold by his own brothers down into the land of Egypt. They intended harm for him, but God turned it around for good. He blessed Joseph. In every environment that he was in, Joseph remained faithful to God. And God continued to bless him until eventually he was recognized by the Pharaoh as a man who had unique abilities to interpret dreams that his God was a God who could reveal even what was in the mind. And so Pharaoh elevated Joseph to second over the whole kingdom of Egypt. And during a time of famine, um, Joseph helped Egypt store up. Um, during a time, seven years of good harvest to store up for seven years of famine. And that's when his brothers and eventually his father and his whole family came to Egypt because they were starving in their land. And they came, and eventually, you, you remember, Joseph hides his identity for a while to see if the brothers have had a change of heart since they sold him into Egypt and threw him in a pit. But there comes a point in the story where Joseph weeps 
as he's reunited with his brothers, and he realizes that God has changed their hearts. And so they're all welcomed into Egypt, and that's kind of where the story of Genesis concludes. And then there's this gap, this period of time, this unknown number of years. It was probably at least 100, if not more, years that transpire between Genesis and what we begin to read in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun. Those first six are not listed in the order of their birth, but they're listed together because these were the six sons of Leah, the first wife of Jacob, who was only his first wife because he was tricked by his uncle Laban, if you remember the story. And he ended up with the older sister instead of the one he loved, Rachel, the younger sister. Trust me, Jacob's household was a mess. How many can relate? Sometimes our household's a mess, right? We have complicated situations. Well, it was no different, and God loved him no less. And then it says Benjamin. Benjamin was the son born to Rachel. There was also an older brother born to Rachel. His name was Joseph. We'll see him in just a minute. Dan and Naphtali, these were sons born to Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah. There was a lot of competition in the home. Who was going to have the most kids? And so the maidservants were, uh, were, were given over to Jacob, and Jacob gave in to that. And he, it's a very complex household, is it not? And then Gad and Asher, those were the sons born to Leah's maidservant, Zilpah. Because Leah realized, like, oh, well, she gets to give her maidservant, I'm going to give my maidservant. And pretty soon there was 12 brothers that were born all together to this man named Jacob, who God had chosen through Abraham, through his grandfather Abraham, through his father Isaac, and then ultimately to Jacob, who received the blessing and was going to be the one through whom God would accomplish his ultimate purposes of redemption. He had set that family apart to work his plan of redemption as told through Genesis chapter 3. As early as Genesis chapter 3, you'll remember God made a promise. Even after Adam and Eve sinned, he said, one day your seed will come and he will crush the head of this serpent that's misled you, that's led you away from me and led you into the consequences of sin, which is death. The total number, it says in verse 5, of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Genesis chapter 46, verse 26, says this, The total number of persons belonging to Jacob, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons. So this accounting of 70 that end up in Egypt, it doesn't include the women. It only includes the males in the family. Who came to Egypt? It says there were 66. And Joseph's sons who were born to him in Egypt, two persons. He had two sons, Jacob did, or Joseph did, you remember. Do you remember their names? Ephraim and Manasseh were the two boys that were born to Joseph in Egypt. All of those of Jacob's household. So you have the two sons, plus you have Joseph. So now you're up to 69. And then you have Jacob himself, makes 70. All those of Jacob's household 
who had come to Egypt, 70 persons. Again, there were more than 70. There were women. Likely there were a couple hundred that were part of this group known as the children of Abraham, the Israelites that had come into Egypt. And we pick up the story in verse 6. Then Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. There came an end to Joseph's era. There came an end to his brother's lifespan, and now it was left for a future generation. But the Israelites were fruitful, and they increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Jacob had how many children? Twelve sons besides sisters. That's a big family, right? Imagine if each one of those children had 20 children of their own. It's crazy how fast things can start to multiply, right? With that kind of birth rate. We don't usually experience that in the United States. I have five children. We walk down the street and people give us glances. Like, what are you guys thinking? Wow. Right? We don't live in a society that values, for the most part, larger families. And yet that was all about this time period. Families and children were a blessing from God, and people saw it that way. Verse 8, a new king, a new pharaoh over Egypt, who had not known Joseph, came to power in Egypt. This is interesting because this pharaoh or this king is not named. And there's many controversies about who exactly was this pharaoh the Pharaoh of the Exodus, the Pharaoh of Moses' day. I think it's interesting that God purposely doesn't have Moses name him. Not that God didn't know his name. But the point of the story of the Exodus is not about the Pharaoh. It's about the God who delivered his people. So this Pharaoh sets in contrast with a God who is revealing his name to the people. This Pharaoh is left unnamed, and it's on purpose. But this Pharaoh also rises to power, and it says, the Bible says, who had not known Joseph. Now, there's two possibilities here. One is this Pharaoh was coming from a different dynasty, a different family, a different region of Egypt. And there was always uh, a conquest for power within these kingdoms. One Pharaoh would be assassinated by another group, and that group would then take over the reign, and their family would be established as the Pharaoh of Egypt. Yes, it's possible that he came from a different region and wasn't familiar with Joseph, nor his descendants, nor his story. But it's also possible that this Pharaoh knew about Joseph, but didn't have an appreciation for Joseph, nor his descendants any longer. He was fed up with the Israelites. He was fed up with the people of God who had descended from Joseph. Whichever it was, whether it was somebody who was outside of the knowledge of Joseph or, or somebody that kind of had an understanding of Joseph but no, more, no longer any appreciation of him, the reality is slavery began to take hold. And, and this leads me to my first point, and, and the first point is this, the origin of slavery. Slavery takes hold when God is forgotten or forsaken. Slavery always takes hold, whether it's in our country, whether it's in our personal lives, whether it's in an experience that we know about in a relationship. Slavery, 
or being bound to something that we serve that becomes our taskmaster, it always takes hold when we set aside God or we forsake him in our devotion. And that was no different for the Israelites. As a matter of fact, it's likely that the Israelites had begun to absorb the culture that was around them. Rather than being set apart and worshiping God alone, they had begun to worship the idols of the culture in which they inhabited. And because of that, they had forsaken God, and they no longer talked about God and the legacy of Joseph and what God had done through him. It became something that wasn't important, that wasn't carried on in, in, um, in and among their community. They had forsaken God, and they now had been led into the consequences of that slavery. How do I know that? Joshua chapter 24. Joshua lived after Moses, and he's writing and reflecting upon his own people, and he writes this in, in Joshua 24, 14. Get rid of the gods your fathers worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and worship Yahweh. Joshua commanding to the people who are the next generation, saying, you guys need to get rid of what your fathers worship. Who were their fathers? They were the generation of Moses. They were the generation that had forsaken God in Egypt. They had, a, they had started to adopt the values of the culture in which they lived. How easy is it for you and I to begin to take that journey ourselves? Are we not surrounded by luxuries, by ease, by comfort, by things that demand our time, attention, and resources? That can, if we're not careful, that can lead us down to a path of devotion, a path of pursuit that should only be reserved for the living God in our lives. That's the condition of the people of Israel. Verse 9, Pharaoh said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Let us deal shrewdly with them. I got an idea on how to take care of these guys. I got an idea on how we can make sure these people don't get out of control. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and if war breaks out, they may join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. This is ironic, is it not? That Pharaoh's attempt in doing what he's about to do is to keep the people from doing what? Leaving. Well, God had other plans. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread, loathe, hate the sight or the thought of these Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives better or bitter? Bitter, with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Let's look at Pharaoh for a moment. Pharaoh represents something in this story. He represents the antagonist against God. 
He represents all that opposes God and his people. Sound familiar? What was Pharaoh's vantage point? What was his perspective? Number one, he resented God's people. He resented them. He had no appreciation for them, nor their legacy that came from Joseph, a man who helped Pharaoh, a man who helped Egypt become a rich nation through the gift that God had given him of interpreting dreams. Instead of respecting God's people, no, he fought against them. He resented them. He wanted them subject underneath his thumb. Number two, Pharaoh rejected God's promises. You know, it's interesting. God had covenanted with his people to make them into a great nation. Joseph even said, one day you're going to leave this place, Egypt, and you're going to continue on your journey to a land that God will show you. And when you do leave this place, take my bones with you. Carry them out of Egypt. It was by faith that Joseph said that. So that God's promises might be fulfilled. Pharaoh didn't want anything to do with God's promises, nor did he respect them. Instead, he sought to keep God's promises from being fulfilled. And number three, God res- or Pharaoh resisted God's plan. He resisted God's plan. He wanted to deal shrewdly with them. Within short meant what? Slavery. Oppression. Create a life of bitterness for the people. That isn't the plan that God has for his people, is it? Does God want us to experience just nothing but bitterness and slavery in our experience? No. God came to set his people free. God wants us to live a life, an abundant life, a full life. He came to give us life and life to the full. That's what God wants, but Pharaoh doesn't want that for, his, for God's people. Pharaoh is the very picture of a man in rebellion to God. He resented God's people, rejected God's promises, and resisted God's plan. You know, Pharaoh's strategy for claiming sovereignty over the people was what? To enslave them. And when that didn't work, he said, we got to make their lives even more miserable. And he continued to ratchet up the pressure against God's people until eventually they were crying out for deliverance, just like that man in the sewer. I don't know about you, but after day one, I'd be like so miserable down in the sewer, right? Eight days in the sewer to the point where he is forced to drink the sewer water. Andy and Stephen, do you know anything about that? Never had a sip of that water? Nope, nope. Ugh, I I can hardly believe that. But that's the level of misery that the enemy seeks to inflict on the people of Israel, God's people. The Exodus, therefore, is not just a story about the epic struggle between Moses and a Pharaoh. No, it's an age-old story about the epic struggle between Satan and God over the people that God wants to save. Number two, that leads us to number two, the experience of slavery. We looked at the origin of it, now the experience of it. Slavery becomes an oppressive taskmaster that ruthlessly inflicts bitterness into our lives. Slavery is not a pleasant thing, is it? And yet the Bible makes it clear that we're all born into slavery of sin. 
And sin is a taskmaster. It continues to make us do things that aren't going to be helpful for our lives. It tries to draw us into something that looks appetizing, but in the end is bitter and suffering. And even after we are freed from the the penalty of our slavery through Jesus Christ, that slavery, that sin keeps knocking at our door, keeps trying to draw us back into a bondage relationship that leads us to misery and despair. So why does God allow suffering? Why does he allow misery into our lives? I think this story tells us there's two reasons for it. Number one, he wants his people to grow. Do you realize that when we're delighting in all the the greatness of Egypt, when we're living our lives in abundance and plenty, there's many times where we're not growing in our relationship with God. We get comfortable in the culture in which we live. We begin to pursue idols. We begin to pursue things that God knows are not good for us. So sometimes he allows suffering into our lives to wake us up to our need for him, to shape our lives so that we might grow closer and more dependent on him. And that's what happened in Israel. As they faced this slavery, they actually became a tighter community. They began to depend on one another and turn to God for help and deliverance. There's a passage in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. It says this, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. God wants us to have hope. And where does hope begin? It begins in suffering many times. God allows suffering. He allows the effects of of these things into our lives. Why? Because he wants us to grow. He doesn't want us to stay complacent where we're at. He wants us to grow in our faith and our dependence on him. Number two, he wants his people to go. You see, the Israelites weren't going anywhere. They had become very used to being in Egypt and all the things that it offered. Why would we go somewhere else, someplace that's more difficult, someplace that is unknown? We're comfortable here. How often are God's people in the church having the same attitude? I'm just comfortable where I'm at. Don't be asking me to give a little more. Don't be asking me to go on mission here. Don't be asking me to cross the street to my neighbor's house. But God doesn't want us to stay comfortable. He wants us to be on mission and be going for him. So he brings suffering into our lives sometimes because we've gotten stagnant. We're not going. We're not on mission. And he uses these moments to wake us up to what really matters in life. Verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If this child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. What is Pharaoh doing now? Well, slavery wasn't enough. They just keep multiplying. They just keep growing as a people. And Pharaoh gets more and more worried. 
more and more fearful, more and more determined to do something about this blessing that is on this people. And so he ramps it up and turns to genocide. He turns to killing all the males that are born in the nation. And he calls in two women. Now, these two women weren't the only midwives who were delivering, oh, that's a lot of work, right? But they likely were the two that were in charge of the work. They were the two that were giving orders, marching orders to all the other midwives, midwives who helped women deliver in that day. And he says, this is what you are to do. You are to make sure that if the, if the child is born and it's a male, get rid of them. But if it's a female, she can live. Seems a little weird, doesn't it? If you want to eliminate the births, why wouldn't you get rid of the females? Right? There's something more devious happening here. You know, there's three satanically inspired times in the Word of God where there was executions that were directed towards the messianic line. The first one was here in Pharaoh. He's trying to get rid of the male line. Why the male line? Because the promise of the Messiah to come was through who? Through the seed of the woman who ultimately would be a male child, a male heir to the promise. There's another time in 2 Kings chapter 11 where they almost eliminate every single son that's in the line, and the woman's name is Athalia. Don't name your daughter that. She's a wicked woman who tried to eliminate all of the male descendants in the line of David. 2 Kings chapter 11. And Herod, do you remember Herod? Yeah. Matthew chapter 2, what did he do? After the wise men gave him the ghost, they ghosted him, right? He went into Bethlehem and he murdered every child under two years old in an attempt to get rid of Jesus, the Messiah. This was a death warrant issued. This was the first time where life was being threatened. And whether it's Adolf Hitler and his final solution for eliminating the Jews or communist China with its one family, one child policy or the pro-choice movement in the West that we've come so used to just living under, this opposition to life is always opposition to God. Pharaoh had two strategies for preventing God's people from growing. Slavery and death. Do you realize that's still the two weapons he uses? He enslaves the people of God, and he tries to bring death to God's people. Those are his weapons of warfare. What they needed is exactly what we need, a savior, a deliverer from God, someone who can rescue us from slavery and death and bring us to life and hope. Just as God was about to provide them a Savior, Moses, he has provided us a Savior, Jesus. Where once there was only bondage and death, now Jesus brings liberty and life. Amen? Amen. So what is the way out of slavery? The last section here offers us a way out. It offers us an exodus to this problem of slavery and death. Verse 17, the Hebrew midwives, however, feared God. If you, have, if you bark in your Bible, underline that. Feared God. 
and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Well, this is an act of civil disobedience, is it not? Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world at that time. And they basically said, nope, not going to follow your orders, Pharaoh. Why? Because they understood what God's will was. And God's will was not to bring death and destruction upon his people. And they were going to have no part in being complicit with that. And if that meant their own lives, they were risking their own lives, were they not? To stand up to this decree, to this order of the Pharaoh? But they did it because why? Because they feared God over fearing man. Principle number one, the way out of slavery always begins by remembering God and revering his ways. Do you realize that? God wants us to know him and to honor him, to respect him, to have a fear of him, a reverence and an awe of who he is and what he has done. I love the names. Shipra, one of the midwives. You know what her name means? Beautiful one. You know what Pua means? Splendid one. And certainly their actions were beautiful and splendid before God. Both of them lived up to their names. It's not easy to stand up to Satan. It's not easy to stand up to Pharaoh. That's why these two women are great examples in the Word of God. But Didn't they tell a lie? Let's read verse 18. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before a midwife can get to them. What is this? Right? Is this the truth? Is this a lie? What are these women doing here? Well, clearly they're mocking Pharaoh and the Egyptians, right? Also, this makes no sense if this were true. That means if this was absolutely true, then why would there be midwives? Right? The Israelite women would never need a midwife because they were always giving birth before the midwives arrived. No. This is a way to basically say, Pharaoh... We're going to trust God. We have faith in God, and we're not going to follow your orders. Does God condone lying? Do the means always justify the end? No. Right? And yet here we have an example of the midwives misleading in a way that preserves life. How do we know if what they did was right or not? Well, many times we can see what God thinks by continuing to read how, how those people are treated by God, how God views what they did. Principle number two, the way out of slavery involves taking a bold stance against the culture of evil. Was this a bold stance? Were they willing to sacrifice their own lives in order to rescue the lives of these male children? What did God think? Verse 20. So God was good to the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very numerous since the midwives feared God and gave them families. Later in the, in the Bible, we'll read about a woman named Rahab. She also 
told something that wasn't fully true when she hid the spies that were there to scout out Jericho. And what did God do? He preserved her life. He rescued her. And he said her faith, by faith, she did those things. God does look deeper. He looks at the heart, does he not? He judges what's in our heart. Are we trying to honor him? Now, what I love is the three Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because they don't even lie. They're just like, go ahead and throw us in the furnace. But we ain't bowing down to you. Right? But it's a measure of their faith. This was a measure of the women's faith. And God rewarded their faith. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Well, Pharaoh is now foiled by the women. His plan to kill and eradicate the Jewish males is not working out so well. So what does he do? Verse 22. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. He now goes beyond the midwives, and he creates a price over the head of every male child that's born to the Hebrew slaves. You have the right to just grab that child and throw them into the Nile River, drown them, kill them, get rid of them. And he issued a decree throughout the land of Egypt. What a horrendous thing. What a plight that the people face. And this is principle number three. The way out of slavery requires faith in God's supernatural deliverance. Stay tuned. God is at work. Let me challenge you. Maybe you come here today, and I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what level of slavery that you might be dealing with, bound to something that is dragging you down. I want to invite the worship team to come up because we're going to respond in just a moment. But maybe you have the type of thing where you feel enslaved to a certain relationship that you know isn't healthy. God is at work. He wants to deliver you from that. Maybe your finances are just tying you down. God has a solution. He wants to deliver you from the bondage that you're experiencing. Maybe it's a sin that you're wrapped up in. That you're just continuing to go back to the well for satisfaction or significance or whatever you think you're getting from it. God has the answer. He wants to deliver you. But it begins with you being honest before God. With you saying, God, I need your deliverance. I need your help. That's what the people of Israel were doing. They were crying out. They experienced misery. They experienced suffering. They were bound to slavery. And they needed a deliverer. God wants to deliver you and he wants to deliver me. You know, maybe your first step is to talk to someone on the prayer team. There's going to be some people in the back. I see Don over there standing by the table. I see uh, Tucker. Tucker's clearly on the prayer team this morning. Now Richard and Cindy are heading back there. And if you need to just talk with somebody and pray with somebody, that's, that's a great first step. Bring your issue before God. And there's brothers and sisters here who want to pray with you. As we respond, feel free to move about. And if you need prayer, start there. But I encourage you, that God wants to deliver you from whatever it is that you're bound up in. And he delivered his people, Israel. Amen?
Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you desire to liberate us from the, from the bondage that we all experience. God, whether we know Jesus or we've yet to meet him. Slavery abounds, God. We're all, we're all drawn to sin and we get tangled up in, in the mess that it is. Thank you that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we can be children of God and live that out.